You see, this is precisely what Jesus was doing with these Beatitudes. He's celebrating these certain categories of people, and they're not the types of people you and I would normally celebrate in our mind today. For instance, the meek. Let's look at the meek, for example. The meek. Let's face it, if I were to guess and speak of your life, None of us are striving with great amounts of effort on a daily basis to be meek, right? Like we're not the good, that's not the goal in many of our minds when we wake up in the morning, we're not saying to ourselves, top priority, self, be meek today, right? That, that's not a goal that, that we strive for, that we're trying to acquire in our lives. And maybe for you, it's because you're like, I don't even really know what meekness is. So of course I'm not striving for it. I'm not even sure what that word means. But maybe, just maybe, for many of us, it's because we don't particularly care for the connotations associated with meekness. You see, when I think of meekness in my world, I naturally think of someone who's soft. And I don't mean that in a good way, like, you know, like a soft teddy bear. Aww. You know, I don't mean it in that kind of way. I mean soft like, so when I was growing up as a kid, you know, I was taught, you can't be soft. You got to be hard. You got to be, you got to be hard. You got to have this hard shell. You, gotta, you, you can't be soft. Why? Because in my mind and in my world, to be soft meant that you were a pushover. To be soft meant that you were a doormat for people to trample all over upon. To be soft meant that you had no backbone that you couldn't stand up for yourself. You know, and I got two boys, nine and six, gonna be seven soon, and I, you know, I see this playing out of my parenting. You know, my kids fall and they cry. I'm like, stop crying. Stop, why are you crying, man? I know you're bleeding. I know you think you're dying, but you're not. You know, just stop, stop. And they'll go to run to mom, you know, mom, mom, and, and of course my wife, she's, she's got the tender motherly touch, and so she's like, oh, my baby, my baby. And I'm telling my wife, stop it. Stop doing this. You know, we're trying to raise some tough young boys, right? And so for me and my world growing up, that, that was my world. In fact, I was, I was reprimanded and whenever I cried. My dad would say, why are you crying? Girls cry, you know, and that's the message that, that I was instilled, that, that was instilled in my world. Now, that's a whole counseling session for myself that I can unpack, you know, but, but, but we're not going to do that for here, for now. But, but in my world, that, that's, what, that's what meekness meant, it meant to be soft. It meant that ultimately you were weak and pathetic. Not empathetic and pathetic. Right? You were weak and pathetic. And so listen, church, if you have a similar idea in your mind when it comes to meekness, why in the world would any of us want to possibly pursue a characteristic like that for our lives? I don't want that for myself. I, I don't want that. And, and quite frankly, church, I don't want that for you. I don't want you guys to be a pushover. I don't want you to be a doormat. I don't, want you, I, don't want, I don't want you to be identified as someone who has no backbone or who can't stand up for themselves. Furthermore, you want to know something else? I know that Jesus doesn't want that for you. How do I know that? Because when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, that's not what he has in mind when it comes to meekness. He's not thinking about a pushover. He's not thinking about a doormat. He's not thinking about someone with zero backbone. In fact, did you know that Jesus rarely ever used descriptive words to describe his character? When you study the Gospels, rarely will ever Jesus ever describe himself through particular adjectives. Now, he would often identify himself. 
saying things like, I am the Son of God, the Messiah, right? Things like teacher, you know, shepherd, right? Like, and these are all words and concepts that identified who Jesus was. But rarely did Jesus ever describe his character with specific adjectives. But one of the few times he does, he refers to himself in Matthew 11 as follows. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. By the way, as college students, you should tuck this verse right in your back pocket at all times because I promise you, if you don't know this already, there are going to come moments throughout the course of this year where you will labor and you will feel heavy laden. And Jesus says, hey, don't, don't, don't go to Netflix. Don't watch reruns of The Office. Don't, don't, go to, don't go to this friend. Don't go to, that, don't go to that glass. Don't go to that bottle. Don't go to that place. Don't go to that thing. He says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, and the promise is, and I will give you rest. Not Michael Scott. I will give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, he goes on and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and here it is, for I am gentle. This is the same root word that's used in today's beatitude, which is translated as meek. And so Jesus is saying, for I am gentle, I am meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, listen, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that of all the words that Jesus could have possibly used to describe himself, he goes with meek. I mean, this is the same Jesus who possessed all the power in the universe to call down fire from heaven if he wanted to. This is the same Jesus who can raise the dead in a blink of an eye. This is the same Jesus who could speak just one word and healing would come upon someone's body. Demons would flee in his presence. Jesus would step onto a scene and, and the kingdom of darkness will be pushed back. This is the same Jesus that the Bible describes as the Lion of Judah whose roar echoes throughout all of eternity. And this Jesus comes on the scene and the word that he chooses to use to describe himself is meek. Friends, I wonder, could it be that Jesus had a very different idea of meekness in his mind than we do in our minds today. You see, I think for Jesus, when he spoke of meekness, I think this is what he had in mind. I think for meekness, for Jesus, he understood it to be power that is exercised under rightful submission. If you're taking notes down here today, you might want to just jot this down somewhere in your margins. Meekness, as Jesus understood it, is power that is exercised under rightful submission. Submission. You see, real quick, before I go into the definition, for many of us, we think power and submission are mutually exclusive things. Right? Surely, if you're powerful, you don't, you don't have a need to submit to anyone. In fact, the more powerful you are, the further from the need from submission you are. And those who are living in submission, really, we understand them to be powerless or to not have any power. And so we understand power and submission oftentimes in our human perspective as opposite ends of the spectrum. But listen, what meekness does, what Jesus does with meekness is he brings these two things right in the center. He says power is not mutually exclusive from submission. You see, for Jesus, meekness was never an issue of a lack of power. Again, most of us think of meek people as powerless people, but for Jesus, 
the meek actually held great amounts of power. So much so that if you follow this beatitude, the promise to follow is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, the meek have the ability to advance and move in power here on earth. So you see, the meekness in, in, in the definition of meekness in the mind of Christ was never an issue of not having power. Rather, it was always a matter of how that power was exercised. If you look at the life of Jesus, you would never think for a moment that Jesus lacked power. You wouldn't. I mean, if that's the conclusion that you draw upon reading through the Gospels, I would submit to you, you're reading the wrong Bible. You're reading a false Gospel. Because when you read through the Gospels, there's no possible way that you would walk away saying, Jesus is powerless. He has no power. In fact, crowds would follow him because everything he did, everything he said, every miracle he performed, every word that he spoke seemed to drip with great amounts of power. But that power, you need to understand, church, that power was always exercised under rightful submission, even for Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Remember, this is the same Jesus who's been performing great signs and wonders, healing the sick, healing all kinds of people, exhibiting extraordinary amounts of power. And here's what he says in in John chapter 5. He says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord. As powerful as I am, people, I can do nothing on my own accord. But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does Likewise, you see, meekness is not an issue of a lack of power. The key to meekness is that it is power that is exercised under rightful submission. And so the question for us becomes, in what ways will you influence and impact the people around you? By the way, did you know that you hold a certain level of power? Every single one of you. Every single one of you in this room, you hold a certain level of power. And I don't mean, you know, like in some kind of Marvel superhero comic book kind of way. You know, I'm talking about like every single one of us, we hold a certain level of power in this place, on this earth, on this planet. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you hold a very specific kind of power. Romans 8 tells us that you have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. That same power who raised Jesus from the dead now resides inside of you. And that power is at work in you and seeks to work through you for the good of this world. That power is not residing in you so that you feel powerful. That power resides in you so that the Holy Spirit can do a work inside of you, ultimately then to do a work through you in this world. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know, even if you're not a person of faith, you hold a certain level of power in this world. You hold the ability and the potential to impact and influence someone else's life. And by the way, that's why I always say, I don't care if you hold a leadership position somewhere, maybe in your campus ministry, in your organization, titles and all of that, that's not what makes a leader a leader. What makes a leader a leader is the ability to influence, to impact someone else's life. That is true leadership. It's not, it doesn't boil down to a role or a title or a position. It is your ability to influence, and that's why every single one of us has leadership potential in this room. 
We have the ability and the power to make a difference in someone else's life. And you see, this is where the true test of meekness comes into play. You can either influence people to play to your favor, to play to your agenda, or to win people to yourself. Dale Carnegie wrote a book on how to win people to yourself, right? He wrote a whole book on that, right? And it's a great book, great book, great business book, but a lot of us take that and we use it for our favor. In other words, we use it so that we use the ability to influence people so that we can ultimately look better in their eyes so that ultimately they might like us more. Anyone guilty of that? Yeah. You see, you can use your influence, you could use your power in that way, or, 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 you can take the power that you have, place it under rightful submission under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, and ask, Lord, how would you have me influence and impact this person's life? How can I make a kingdom difference in this person's life? Or how can I use this power to influence, to add kingdom value in the lives of the people around me? You see, those are the types of questions the meek are asking. Because the meek are concerned with only that which the Father in heaven is doing. The meek understand how to exercise their power under rightful Submission. And so church, I hope you see, meekness is not about ultimately being soft, not having a backbone. Meekness is about using the power that you have. The power that you have, placing it under rightful submission under the Lordship of Jesus and asking him, Lord, how would you have me make a difference in the people around me? How many of you know you can, you can influence people towards the kingdom of darkness or you can influence people towards the kingdom of light? That influence, that power to influence goes both ways. You can influence people towards Jesus or you can influence people away from Jesus. I want, I want to just put that out there as a word of warning because all, not, not all influence is positive. And so, listen, when you grow in meekness, here's the thing. You will also find yourself growing in your hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I want to just quickly look at this last beatitude here before we wrap up our time. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed are you, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, for you shall be satisfied. Now, for the longest time, when I, whenever I read this beatitude or heard this beatitude, my focus always went, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but it always went to righteousness. Righteousness. My, I read this beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So yeah, righteousness is the goal, right? I, and I thought for the longest time the point of this beatitude was to encourage people to live a more righteous life, a life that is aligned with the heart of God or the intentions of God, to live a life that reflected the things of, of, of God's kingdom and what he valued, right? Righteousness. Live a righteous life. And while all of that is true, it dawned on me one day that that's actually not the point of this beatitude. Like, yes, Jesus wants us to live righteous lives. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But that's actually not the, the driving message behind this statement, behind this beatitude. I want you to look at this verse again. Notice what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, here's the promise. For they shall be, what's that word? Satisfied. Satisfied. What is Jesus saying will be satisfied? Their hunger and their thirst. You see, the goal at the end of the day for Jesus wasn't necessarily righteousness per se, 
but it was our hunger and our thirst for the things of God. What Jesus was trying to get us to was a deep hunger, an insatiable hunger, an unquenchable thirst for the things of God. Of course, God wants us, your life to be about the things of God. Of course, your life, God wants your life to be uh, righteous in every single way and all of that, living, you know, holy lives. But more than that, he says, I, I don't want you to just kind of cognitively get that you ought to live a righteous life. I actually want you to want to hunger, to thirst, to live for righteousness, to go after the things of God. And so the question is, how do we grow in our hunger and thirst? If righteousness is kind of the secondary goal, it's kind of, yeah, a given. Jesus wants us to get us, get us to righteousness. But more than that, he wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The question is, how do we cultivate this hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, it's found in this little two-step process. And I'll give it to you real quickly. The first step is this. You need to remove the appetite killers in your life. You need to remove all the appetite killers in your life. Listen, folks, if you want to cultivate a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness, you've got to get good at this. You've got to do this diligently. You see, the truth is, we all have things. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your disposition is or your personality type. We all have things in our lives that kill off our appetites for God. Very much in the same way that there are things that, that kill our physical appetites, right? There's a, there's a reason why I tell my kids not to snack or eat junk before dinner. Why? Because they're going to ruin their appetites. And in the same way, we have things in our lives, in our spiritual lives, that ruin our appetite for God. And we need to be diligent in figuring out what those things are. In fact, if you're having a hard time figuring out, ah, I wonder what these appetite killers are in my life. I wonder what... What are, what are these appetite? How do I begin to identify these appetite killers? Let me give you an evaluative question, and, and I've, I've provided this in the past to some of you, but this serves as a good reminder for many of us. You may want to ask yourself this evaluative question What are the habits? Who are the people? Where are the places that draw me away from the presence of God? When you're trying to identify the things that kill your appetite and your hunger and your thirst for God, you need to ask this question every once in a while. Just kind of take inventory and stock of your life. What are the habits? Who are the people? Where are the places that draw me away from the presence of God? The truth is we all have habits or particular ruts that we fall into that have a way of dulling our appetites for God. Some of them can be sin-based habits. Some of them are, 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 are straight-up sinful habits, while some of them are just habits, again, which not maybe not, won't be blatantly sinful, but they don't particularly sharpen our spiritual senses either. What are those habits? We have people in our lives that either really fuel our love for Jesus or those who sort of drag us down spiritually. Who are those people? There may be certain places that we go that either help us feel really connected to the heart of God or it may distance us from the very heart of God. Where are those places that you naturally gravitate towards? Could it be that those places draw you away from the heart of God? Whatever these appetite killers look like for you, you've got to find them and do everything you can to remove them. We need to be ruthless about, about this process because the fact is, if you don't kill these appetite killers... These killers will kill off your appetite. They will dull your appetite to a point where you will find yourself no longer longing or desiring the things of God. And folks, I don't know if you've ever been there. 
as a follower of Jesus, that's a pretty darn scary place to be. Where your heart is so hardened and so cold that you're not even sure that you really want God in your life anymore. Identify those appetite killers and be ruthless. Be unforgiving, be unapologetic about killing them and removing them all together. But after removing them, here's a second step in the process. We need to then replace them with appetite feeders. You see, it's not enough to just remove the appetite killers. Once you remove the things that kill your appetite for God, you need to replace them with things that will feed your appetite for God. Things like new disciplines, new practices, new habits, new relationships, new pathways, new connection points. In fact, you can take that same question I posed just a few moments earlier and just flip it around. And ask yourself the question, now, what are the habits? Who are the people? Where are the places that now draw me into the presence of God? After you identify the, the habits, the people, the places that draw you away from the presence of God, now you got to do some soul searching and ask yourself the question, what are the habits? Who are the people? Where are the places that draw me now into the presence of God? Now, just as a way of example, I want to share with you just a few things that feed my appetite for God. Maybe this will help, you know, serve as sort of, you know, a fuel as you begin to think about this question. For me, one of the ways that my hunger grows for the Lord, my thirst grows for the Lord, is when I'm leading others towards God. When I'm leading others towards God. Whether it's through a one-on-one -on -one conversation or whether it's when I'm leading a small group or whether it's getting in front of a large group like this and, 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 and sharing God's word. When I'm leading others towards God, I feel my hunger for God growing more and more because when I'm spiritually leading others, here's the thing. If you guys have, have served in any kind of ministry leadership capacity, I hope you've come to this, to this tension and this reality. When I'm leading others, I can't help but feel my own inadequacy. Because as, 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 uh, as much as I understand that I'm licensed and ordained, I'm an ordained minister, and, and there's, there was a whole council of, of, of scholarly pastors who, who signed my seal of approval, say, you are ordained, you're approved to go serve in ministry. The truth of the matter is this. I have nothing in me of spiritual value that I can impart to anybody apart from Christ. And when I realized that, I began to see Holy crud, I am, I am, I am so far from, from where this person in my life needs me to be. And so, God, I need you to step in here. There, I gotta be honest with you, folks. There are moments when I'm meeting with many of you, you know, at, at Panera, because that's my spot, Panera now. You can find me at Panera now. Uh, where, where I'm meeting with some of you and you're you're pouring out your heart, you're 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 looking for counsel, you're looking for a word, and, and I gotta be honest with you, you know, like I, I know I seem wise. I know I seem like I know what I'm talking about, but most of the time, I am begging. In my own heart, I'm begging, Lord, would you help me here? Because I feel so inadequate to come alongside the student and give them a word of encouragement to help them with this, with this issue that they're struggling with. God, I need you to intervene. Folks, when you're leading others, again, you're all leaders, every single one of you. When you're stepping into that reality, my hope is that you would come to face to face with this reality. I am so spiritually inadequate. And in that place, I pray, my, my desire would be that your hunger for God would begin to deepen and grow more and more. And so for me, one of the ways that, that I find my hunger growing is, is when I'm finding uh, myself leading others. Uh, another avenue where my hunger grows to the Lord is 
I, I oftentimes find my thirst for God gets stirred when I read certain spiritually charged books. Spiritually charged, particularly books, I prefer books written by dead people. You know, they, they, they seem to carry a different kind of weight and gravity. You know, they've lived their life. They've gone through point A to point Z. And, and now they're, you know, just, just kind of, they're giving their life journey out. And, and, and they're long gone and long-tested principles have stood the test of time. Folks like Brother Lawrence, John of the Cross, Thomas A. Kempis, C.S. Lewis, A.W. Tozer, you know, all these folks reading the words of these writers so often. I don't know why it does. I don't know how it does, but it stirs my spiritual well, unlike anything else. Just the way they write, the way they communicate, the way they talk stirs my, stirs my spiritual wells when I read certain spiritually charged books. I also like to listen to good preaching, Good preaching. That's why I listen to my sermons over and over again, because I just like, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I listen, to be honest, a well-crafted, listen, a well-crafted, Holy Spirit-inspired, timely word can do wonders for my soul. And maybe you found this to be true. Uh, like, when I'm feeling dry and weary, and, and, and I'm feeling like I'm in a desert, there's sometimes a timely word that is preached can do wonders for my soul. I wonder if that's why the writer of Hebrews says, hey, don't stop meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together or some are in the habit of doing because I think there's something that happens in our souls when we gather together like this and hear the word of God preached. I don't think it's just like we got nothing better to do on a Sunday morning and so like, hey, let's go to church. I think there's something that happens in our souls when the people of God gather together to hear the word of God proclaimed. And so for me... When I listen to good preaching, a good Holy Spirit-inspired word can stir my soul, can stir my hunger like anything else. And by the way, church, I hope, I sincerely hope that that's a little bit of what happens every single Sunday when you come here. And you walk out of here feeling hungrier, feeling like your thirst is just being stirred up and just drudged up in your, in, in your well. And you're walking out of here saying, man, that was good for my soul to worship with the body of Christ together here at Penn State in light of everything that's going on in my week, in light of all the things and the demands and the weight and the responsibilities that I have in my life. It was good for me to worship with the family of God together. Now I'm ready to hunger and thirst after him in this coming week. I like to listen to good preaching. Lastly, I never thought this would be a, an important aspect of, of my life, but silence and stillness has become a shockingly important aspect of cultivating my hunger and thirst for God. I don't know if it's because I have young kids or what, but silence is golden. It's like, oh, Jesus is here. You know, it's silence. It's like, this is, this is a good moment. If I can just find a, brief, a few brief moments throughout the day to sit silently still before God in a, in a Psalm 46 kind of way, be still and know that God is God, that he is sovereign, that he's got my life together, I find that my yearning for the Lord grows deeper and deeper. Friends, your hunger and your thirst cannot grow in the busyness of life. It just can't. That's not how our spiritual hunger and thirst gets cultivated. In fact, if you want to find a way to quickly dull your appetite for God, just busy your life with stuff. Just busy it. But if you want to grow in your hunger and your thirst for the Lord, for the things of God, we've got to still our souls long enough to allow the Holy Spirit of God to just stir the wells of our lives through stillness and silence. 
Now listen, friends, you don't have to connect with all of my examples. Maybe you're like, you know, silence and stillness, I mean, it, that would kill me. <laughs> or, or you're like, I, I, I have a hard time getting through, you know, books written by dead people. I just like, they speak on a different like language. I, I just can't get, get with that. That's, that's fine. I'm not saying you need to adopt my examples of how your hunger and your thirst grows for the Lord, but I think it is worth asking, then what are the habits? Who are those people? Where are those places in your life that draw you into the presence of God? If you don't do your homework, okay, I, I'm, I'm assigning homework, people. Uh, homework. I'm assigning homework, people. Just at, do your work and ask in this question. Because if you don't put in that work and asking yourself that question, you will naturally find your hunger dulling, your spiritual senses dulling time after time after time. So remove your appetite killers and then replace them with appetite feeders. And the promise of Jesus here in this beatitude is when you do, I promise you, you'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. The thing that your soul is so longing for, you will find when you hunger and thirst after the things of my kingdom. You'll be satisfied. You'll be satisfied. Church, you see, the kingdom way continues to show us that there is a new and better way to live. There's a new and better way to live. And not only is it found in poverty of spirit or in mourning or grieving our pain, but as we see today, it's found in living a life of meekness and humility. And it's found in growing in our hunger and thirst for the things of God. Church, may we be a church here, right in the heart of our campus, a people that learn to live in this new and better way. Our lives actually look different than the lives of the people around us. Not in a holier-thou kind of way, not in, but it's like in a kingdom kind of way where our lives actually look attractive to the outside world. Our lives aren't smothered by busyness or worry or all those other things, but our lives are marked by a different, better, a truly blessed kind of way. That's my prayer, church, that we might be a people like that, that cover all corners of this campus, living in this kingdom way. Amen, church.